Welcome back, guys, to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm fortunate to have Jenny Lisk. Uh, Jenny is the host of the Widowed Parent Podcast, which has been featured in the Washington Post and Parent Map. The, uh, basically, how she started it is um, after losing her husband to brain cancer when her kids were 9 and 11, uh, Jenny decided to set out each week uh, in search of the best information, advice, and experts, and bring them straight to fellow widowed parents. Uh, Jenny, thank you for being on. Yeah, hey, Arnav, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, awesome, thank you. So um, set the scene for us. Uh, Where did you grow up? Talk about the time period. What were you like as a kid? Maybe talk a little bit about your family situation, things of that nature. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the really funny thing is that I actually grew up like four blocks from where I live now, (laughs) which uh, I didn't really plan. And I'm here in the suburbs of Seattle, Washington, um, in Redmond specifically. And um, I actually lived away for about 10 years. I mean, I went away for college. And then um, shortly after I got married, um, my husband and I lived in New York for five years and then Portland for five years and then ended up right back here, um, very close to the house that I grew up in. So, um, but I was born in Seattle and um, lived in that house from the age of five, right before I was starting kindergarten all the way until my parents still live there. Um, So it's been, uh, I think they've lived there for 42 years or 43 wow. years or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, um, I'm the oldest of three girls. So I have two younger sisters and, um, you know, I think had a pretty conventional suburban childhood. I mean, I, I played a sport every season. This was back in the days when, you know, kids didn't specialize quite as much in, you know, particular, you know, travel teams or, or a particular sport. So, you know, soccer every fall, basketball every winter. Um, spring was sometimes, actually it was usually spring soccer. There was a rec spring soccer team as well, but not a, you know, not a serious team. Um, and my family would go camping. My parents had a little sailboat that we'd, you know, take some family trips on. Um, you know, always did well in school and um, played on the basketball team in high school. Um, so that was, my kids tease me now because I was the, I was the captain when I was a senior, but I was the only senior on the team. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we did not have a good year that year, but it was fun anyway. Yeah. Um, do you remember ever being introduced to entrepreneurship at a young age? Is that something um that you knew about at a young age or was that something that you learned more about later in life? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and actually my grandfather, my dad's father was an entrepreneur in his early years. So before I knew him mostly, but um, he started his own helicopter company. Hel- um, oh. It was called Doman Helicopters and he had invented a particular rotor technology apparently this is back in the 40s and 50s um helicopters tended to the the rotors had too much vibration and they would be flying and then a blade would snap off because of the vibration in the hub of the 
of the rotor causing the helicopter then to crash and burn and kill everybody. (laughs) And uh, so he had invented a, some kind of technology that made the rotor not have all that vibration. And it was so critical actually that they, he was involved in the, in um, world war two, not in terms of fighting, but they needed him to be here making the helicopters safer. So all those troops would have safer helicopters to use. Um, you know, at that time, uh, and then ended up after the war starting his own um, company to develop, you know, develop this technology and try to commercialize yeah. it. And so, I had grown up hearing stories of that, you know, effort. Um, is mostly my dad's childhood was taken up with, you know, with the, with his his father's business. Yeah. Um, and then my my grandfather, you know, he he went to work as an engineer in a corporation when I was a kid, but then later. Um, ended up applying that same rotor technology to windmills because it turns out it's very similar, same yeah. kind of rotating thing, just you know, up and down versus flat. Um, and started small companies to try to commercialize the windmill technology. So, you know, as I was kind of a rounded from an extended family uh, perspective. Yeah, um, I guess uh, in your young life, did you face? Any uh, significant loss of a, you know, a grandparent or something of that nature? Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, I didn't really know know anybody who died until I was an adult. Um, One of my grandfathers, not the one I was just talking about, but the other one died when I was very, very young. I think I was three, maybe. Um, So I didn't really remember that. Yeah. And then all three of my other grandparents and any other family members all lived until my one grandmother died when I was right before I got married. So I was like 26 maybe. Okay. But up to that point I had never, I had been to one funeral because it's like some neighbor died and I went along with my mom, but I didn't know the person. So it wasn't really a big deal, you know? Yeah. And I remember though. Um, so my grandmother died and then, couple years later we had moved to new york and of course funerals and wakes and all that seems to be very different in new york than here like you don't really have wakes and stuff as much here and um one of my colleagues her partner died and so everybody in the office went to his wake and actually i think we just went to the wake not to the funeral i was shocked to find out that going to the wake is more important than the funeral because out here like wakes were kind of optional but anyway it's the first dead person i ever saw and i was completely freaked out like because it was it was open open casket casket and and i never had that out here i mean i guess some people do that but it's not i think it's very very common in new york and not as common here um and so my other friend i was like what do i do and she's like just follow me and you know go up kneel down say quick our father and get up and leave i'm like okay so i just followed her but it was really freaky yeah yeah um talk to us about maybe you know your later stages of high school uh and how you approached uh your next steps and choosing college and things of that nature yeah well um I went through the whole, you know, I, I took the SATs and started getting the 
well, back then it was cards in the mail. The mailbox was full of brochures, right, every day because you take the SATs and then you get on all their mailing lists. But now, you know, there was no email back then and there was no websites to go to. So they, all these colleges would mail things in the mailbox. Yep. Small brochures, big packets, you know, all this stuff. And, um, we had done some family trips when we had been in various places and stopped by to see colleges, you know, kind of to sort of check them out. But I don't, it wasn't as big of a deal then I think as it is now of like college trips I guess where you go I haven't quite gotten to that point with my kids or teenagers right now but um uh anyway I applied to some colleges and I was actually being recruited to play uh basketball for Cornell potentially and yeah and uh I you know the coach had done this like west coast recruiting swing and she came and like she came to our house and we had her over for I don't know tea crackers or something you know yeah, <laughs> and yeah. talk, talk to her and um and then she invited me to come visit campus which was very exciting because I was, pff, was probably 17 years old I guess maybe the fall of my senior year I flew by myself you know all the way from Seattle to New York and um they I remember they picked somebody picked me up at the airport teeny tiny Ithaca airport and but I couldn't stay on campus because they had all these recruiting rules you can only stay so many days and my and my you know flight got in at like 10 p.m so they they took me to like a hotel and they dropped me off <laughs> they yeah. arranged some rooms I'm 17 years old and I'm yeah. staying over in this hotel room all by myself and then oh man you know and they dropped me off at 10 or 11 at night and like okay we'll be back at I don't know what time you know first thing yeah. in the morning um and so then I went you know and spent the couple days I then I stayed in the dorms with some of the players on the team that you know they set me up with to show me around and stuff and went to practice and talk to them and um but you know the interesting thing is I guess I learned a lot from this experience I, I was really um I really didn't know I didn't have a first choice at that point like I was looking at Cornell and I was looking at a few other colleges on both coasts and I I, I don't know I was when the coach was asking me you know oh so what do you think you know, are you interested in coming here? I didn't realize that I needed to say, oh, you know, this is great. I love it. And it was true. I did love it, yeah, but I, yeah. I, I just, I didn't know if it was my first choice. And so I, I think I was a little too wishy-washy, Yeah. you know? And so yeah, I was kind of like, oh, You're 17. yeah. Right. And I was <laughs> like, oh, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And so I think she was like, well, I'm not going to waste my recruiting, you know, Time. chips on her Time. to, you know, so I, uh, I, I was waitlisted and um, I just decided like I was too tired of uh, the uncertainty of not knowing where I was going to be going the next year that I was like, I don't want to mess around with the wait list. Like they could call me in August or something and say, go, you know, and I didn't want to, I just wanted to know where I was going and yep. get excited about it and be done. So I, I, uh, dry, I declined the wait list and I ended up going to college in Oregon, a uh, small liberal arts college called Willamette which is in Salem, Oregon. And that was terrific. Um, studied political science and economics. And, but then because of that, I did an internship in DC the summer after my sophomore year Gotcha. in Congress. And then I loved that. So then I was like, I have to transfer. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then I ended up transferring and finishing out at George Washington university um, in DC. What did you love about DC compared to, portland what was the draw well 
well, you know, for someone who's a political science major, you know, it was like, it was what I was interested in. It seemed, you know, the opportunity to intern in uh, the Congress and the, excuse me, the House of Representatives the first time. And then when I transferred back there, I got an internship with my senator and then later with a think tank. And so that was just very exciting, you know, exciting place to felt like I was in the center of the action where you feel like if you're studying political science and you're 3000 miles away, you're not quite in the center of the action, you know? How was the the transfer process? And, you know, I think socially too, how was that? Um, Yeah. Because you've spent two years at one place and then now you're spending, you're trying to make new friends. And I mean, I guess with interning, you made some friends probably, but uh, make it, you know, at, at the new school. Yeah. Well, and I actually spent two and a half years at the first college because after okay. that, um, the first two years, and then I did the summer internship and then I went back for the fall. Oh, okay. okay. Right. And yeah. cause like you could, can't transfer like instantly. Right. Yeah. And so, and that was that fall I decided to, to, you know, apply for January. So I spent a year and a half and actually the reason that I picked, I didn't apply to Georgetown because they had a requirement to, to be on campus two years. Gotcha. And so I would have, had, you know, spend an extra semester in college if I had gone there yeah. and GW only required a year and a half um, of their transfer students. So um, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because when I think of my, my college experience, quote unquote, I think of the Oregon college, you know, with, I was in a sorority and I had a lot of friends and I was involved in, you know, leadership of the sorority. And um, those are mostly my college friends that I, you know, still keep in touch with or look forward to seeing from time to time. Um, and once I transferred to DC, it was more kind of like all about school and work because gotcha. basically I was, so I had a full load of classes, right? A full college course load. Plus I was working, well, let's just say when I first got back there, I was working three days a week in the Senate um, wow. from 12 to six. Right. So that was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 12 to six. So that was 18 hours a week. Yeah. Plus I had a job in a restaurant to earn money because working in the Senate was unpaid. So (laughs) Friday night and Saturday night, every single weekend, I worked in the restaurant about six hours each night. Yeah, probably um, five to six hours each night. So between and then I had, you know, full load of classes. So between those three things, 30 hours of just work plus classes, plus I'm sure transportation to and from. Right. Cause you got the Metro and, and I remember Fridays were crazy because I had class in the morning. I'd rush across town on the subway to get to the Capitol by 12 o'clock noon for, to work from 12 to six in the Senate. And then I dash out of there at six race back. I feel like I had to be at the restaurant at seven, but I'm not sure if that quite adds up. It might've been seven 30, but basically dash back to my apartment on campus, change out of my suit, throw on whatever I had to wear for the restaurant, grab like an apple and peanut butter, you know, and then like race out in the restaurant was in Georgetown and there's not public transit to get out there. So I would like walk from, um, you know, from my apartment to the restaurant and like, barely get there in time while I'm eating the apple while I'm walking. <laughs> you had a good work ethic for uh, what a 19, 20 year old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was very good work ethic. I was 20, just turning 21. Yeah. 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 So, but you know, I was motivated to, to be there and do that. And um, 
you know, it's so, but I, I really, you know, I, it's actually sad to say, I don't know a single person from George Washington from, you know, from my college there. Yeah. Like literally I don't know a, a single person. Yeah. I've even lost touch with the roommate that I had um, when I first yeah. got there. They had assigned me a you know, random, you know, I was a new student and she yeah. was uh, whatever. And they put us together and, um, but she actually lived in New York and went back and forth a lot between DC and New York. I didn't gotcha. realize that was a thing that it's such an easy short yeah. flight and people yeah. go back and forth on the weekends and stuff. And, um, so anyway, but, um, yeah, so I think of the Oregon college as my college days from a social perspective and, gotcha. and then the DC experience is kind of a separate thing. What drew you to, um, you said you studied political science. Mm -hmm. what, what drew you to that? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, political science and economics, both. Okay. I was a, a, well, I started out as a double major. And then when I transferred, the ironic thing is political science became a minor when I went to DC yeah. because they had different distribution requirements. And I had too many electives in American politics and you had to have like certain electives in other poli side disciplines. And I didn't yeah. have enough to like graduate in time and take the extra electives. So I that became a minor. But anyway, um, you know, I got, I took econ 101 freshman year and I just found it so interesting. And like, it was all new to me, like just totally mind blowing. Like, and, and, and that, and I felt like it was so related to political science or maybe more accurately related to a lot of public policy type issues, right? A, a certain amount of laws and policies and fixing what's wrong and whatever is relates to economic policy and understanding economics. And so I felt like they were a good fit. Um, and I became, I was interested in both of them. And I also, when I was a kid, um, my mom was actually on the city council Oh wow. in, uh, yeah, in our city here for several terms. I'm not sure how many, two, two or three terms, I guess, either eight or 12 years. I'd have to ask her anyway, a few times. Um, and so I can remember when I was, oh, I was probably like 10 maybe. And, you know, standing outside on election day, holding up yard signs and waving at the commuters, you know, yeah. go vote, go to the polls, polls are open today, you know, and yeah. going around knocking on doors and passing out brochures. And um, so I think, I, you know, I had that, you know, backdrop as well that um, yeah. helped me be interested in that. Yeah. Um, so what did you end up doing after college? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I, what did I do? I came back here okay. to Seattle and I got a job for a short time at the Seattle Chamber of Commerce and they had some, um, it was kind of a policy position, um, kind of a continuation of, you know, what I'd been interested in the internships in DC, but this was a you know job. Um, but I, I worked there for less than a year and then, well, you know, speaking of the entrepreneurship thing, I was convinced that I was going to, well, it started out as I was going to write a book about, um, getting an internship in Washington, DC, Yeah. but that didn't really go anywhere. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, like, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, it, it, like now the, the resources are so much more available and the ability to reach out to people like to reach out if, or now if you wanted to reach out to other people 
who had been interns and interview them and get their advice or whatever. That would be so much easier to do now with social media, with podcasts, with Twitter, LinkedIn. with everything else, right? Yeah. yeah, LinkedIn, exactly. Back then, I mean, there was like really no way to like reach out and find people. I mean, very slowly by word of mouth, right? If I knew one person who knew one person who knew two people who knew one more person, like maybe eventually I could have found a bunch of people, right? And for but, context, I mean, the internet wasn't even that big of a oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this was, well, this would have been um, 1995. Yeah. I think I barely had email, maybe kind of, sort of, like CompuServe, you know, like where you like, still had to, they would mail you a, they, well, they you get a magazine, like Wired Magazine would come and they had, they would put free CDs in, like CD-ROMs in the, in the back, like trying to, like, America Online and CompuServe and Prodigy were the three big competing ones. And they would, they would, their advertising would be, they'd stick a CD in there, you know, on all the free trial, you know, sign up, but you had to stick the disc in your computer and all these things. So yeah, I mean, it was barely, I mean, the internet wasn't even, I think, I guess it was starting to, but you know, barely, barely on email. Anyway, that was pretty short lived, but I, what I ended up doing is um, as far as, like as I was starting to learn about some of these tools, I said, you know, I should really start, like I could build websites for people. Yeah. Right. And I, and this was super rudimentary. This was like back in the days when I would go to Barnes and Noble and I would spend hours sitting there looking over all the computer books on the shelf and buy a book like this thick, probably like three, four inches thick, excuse me, about HTML and manually by hand, coding with the brackets and you miss a bracket and the whole thing doesn't work and then you're scouring through looking for the missing bracket or the closed thing or whatever um so i made a i started a little tiny consulting company you know making websites and like i said it was 95 and um a couple of clients but the one that ended up being significant is that's how i ended up meeting my future husband um, because I was, it was at a political thing and he was working for a, a think tank here and they had a table like a booth, you know, wanting people to stop by and pick up brochures. And I was walking around looking for people who might want websites. And so I stopped and he was manning the booth that day. Right. Yeah. And I was walking around. So I stopped and I talked to them and somehow, you know, I gave him my card or I got his card or something. And cause they were maybe thinking about getting a website And I ended up then going and meeting with the team there and working with them to create a, I mean, super simple website, you know, by today's standards. I mean, I wouldn't even call it simple. I would call it dinosaur or something. (laughs) But but again, this was, this was 96 by now. Yeah. Spring of 96. Uh, And then after, you know, we worked on that project together, we ended up dating um, and then got married in 98 and actually in, the fall of 96, I ended up going back and I went to um, business school, got an MBA at the University of Washington. Awesome. Um, which speaking of entrepreneurship, I was convinced that I was going to start a company. kind of an outgrowth of my senior thesis that I'd done for my economics degree. Yeah. Um, it was going to be called the Seattle Airline Ticket Exchange. And the idea was that... Um, airline ticket prices were just wildly like there's no really rhyme or reason to why 
a ticket on this flight or this flight or whatever, different prices and didn't really make any sense. And the idea was if you created some kind of market where people could bid on prices, you'd eventually kind of like a, like a, like a stock market for airline tickets. Yeah. yeah. Um, that eventually, you know, you could get where, you know, a ticket at a better time of day would cost more and a worse time of day would cost less and an inside seat would cost less. And it's a flight that wasn't full would cost less and a flight that was more popular would cost more. It's that kind of conceptual idea. It was a very, you know, pure economics theory kind of perspective probably didn't have a lot of reality behind it but i was convinced that i should should try to start that and again so keep in mind this is now 96 when i was applying to business school writing my essay about how i wanted to go there because i wanted to start this company there were a lot of like tech startup stuff startup environment was very exciting and there were things going on here and the u-dub had a entrepreneurship program and so i wrote this essay about how i really wanted to go there because i wanted to start this thing and i needed their education to help me do it um so i went and spent two years and finished that in 98 but of course i never then did anything with the the idea that i had in the first place but yeah i guess you know to your point about entrepreneurship i kind of had it you know interest all along at various points whether it was you know trying to write that book for washington dc interns or trying to get you know consulting to build websites or getting an idea to make this ticket exchange thing um i had ideas at different points and i really wanted to part of the problem too is by the time i was in business school i wanted to do some kind of like start some kind of company but i didn't like have a really good idea as to what i wanted to do like i wanted to run something but i didn't you know i wasn't really hitting anything that i was excited about or that seemed promising yeah what was it um i guess how was the process of uh getting engaged and, and married while you're in business school? Mm. Uh, that worked it, in terms of like, I mean, cause planning a wedding is a lot of work and business yeah. school is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and actually they both, so I graduated from the program in, I guess it must've been June of 98. Yeah. And then we were married in July of 98. So very wow. close together. Um, <laughs> but I do, rem- yeah. I do. Yeah. I do remember that I made a spreadsheet. See, this is another thing I learned at business school because yeah. I was trying to predict how many guests would come right to the yeah. wedding. Yeah. You know, you have this list, long list, right. From, you know, everybody puts their people on the list and, but you know, you have maybe a, a budget or a venue or whatever that you can have X number of people or approximately X number of people but you don't know how many are going to come and you, you don't want to invite, like if you just invite that many, like I think we had, I don't know, let's just say it was a hundred people. Well, if you invite a hundred people, a hundred can't come. So then, you know, that's too bad. But if you invite, you know, 200, but then 150 show up, then you're kind of in big trouble, right? Because yeah, you don't yeah. have a big enough space. <laughs> so anyway, I remember I had been learning, I had to take statistics, of course, in business school. Yeah and probabilities and all that stuff. And anyway, I ended up making this spreadsheet where I put like, I listed every party that we invited and made some kind of probability that they would come. Yeah. And, and so if it was somebody like, you know, like my sister, well, it was a hundred percent sure she was coming. Maybe yeah. you could say it was 99%. She could get in the hospital or something, but you know, yeah. so I put a hundred on her. Right. And if it was somebody like, I don't know, somebody that we were going to invite, but because there were maybe a family member that lived a long way away, but I knew they weren't coming. I put it zero. Yeah. But basically, um, I, I had some kind of logic where I said, you know, okay, if anybody who's local, 
and anybody that hadn't told me specifically one way or the other, if they were local and could theoretically come, and it was just a question of whether they had schedule conflicts, I think I put 80% yeah. probability on them. Yeah. And if they were far away, and you know, I didn't know their schedule, and also they'd have to travel, I think I put like, I don't know, 30% or something probability on them. Yeah. So I figured any individual guest, I didn't know what was the likelihood they would come, but I could make some assumptions you know, and then when you add up this whole spreadsheet and, you know, then you get a pretty good prediction as to like what your total guest count would be, even if you don't know exactly which people and ended up pretty accurate. So I guess like <laughs> you could say I use my business school uh, <laughs> learnings for distribution yeah. models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a fun exercise anyway. Yeah. Um, so talk to us. So what did you end up doing after your MBA? Hmm. Well, you know, as we're talking about this and realizing how many twists and turns there, there were. <laughs> yeah. um, while I was at business school, I started doing an internship for a small startup that was here. It was not a tech startup, okay. um, not computer technology. It was a, this guy had invented this flooring technology, like a, he had a patent for this, like basically a rubber floor with like cushioning properties that make floor safer yeah. and he had a couple ideas for applications one was um basketball courts yeah and he, he had invented it in such a way that supposedly it had the same playing properties as a regular wood basketball floor like you didn't play on it and think oh i'm playing on this weird rubber floor and the ball is bouncing weird and i just can't do this right it had like it played normal wow. but it had this cushioning to it so that it was supposed to reduce injuries so that if these, you know, pro players who have high salaries and the team owners have investments in their team and they're paying them and all yeah. this and they didn't want to have injuries and it was supposed to be safer. And also there were some kind of other related ideas like playground surfacing, which is kind of funny because now you see, you do see in some playgrounds, some kind of like a rubber surfacing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other interesting thing was flooring in like nursing homes and stuff because old people breaking bones, especially breaking hips from falling out of bed is a big risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the very interesting thing is that I, so, okay, so I interned for them and I took a job with them right out of business school. It was a teeny, teeny, tiny company. There were like three people. Yeah. And, you know, I was all excited because it was going to be this big startup. You yeah. Know? Well, like six months later, less than six months later, I don't know, something they were like, oh, yeah, um, we can't really pay you right now. So do you think you could take stock instead of cash for your paycheck? And I was like, um, no. <laughs> you know, like, exactly, right? And that, so at that point, we'd just gotten married, right? Yeah. And we needed to both be working and whatever. So that um, started me off. So it was, uh, it was here. And my sister at the time was working for a large tech company in New York. And she was already there. She was younger, but she had gone there right after college. Yeah. And so she said, hey, I could pass your resume around. You know, at this point, I was six months out of my MBA. It was kind of like a new, you know, person or whatever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, they hired me and paid for the relocation to move us from here to there. And, you know, it was kind of exciting because we were brand newly married. Um start off an adventure, move across the country, you know, start our lives um, back there. But the funny thing is that I kind of lost touch with that basketball floor company. Um, 
after I left. And of course, we didn't have social media then. So it wasn't yeah. like I was keeping up with anybody that way. And I wasn't really friends with any of them to keep in touch. You know, what was I going to do? Call them on the phone? I mean, not really. Yeah. So I lost touch with them. Well, just within the past six months, maybe, I think it was earlier this year, I get this Facebook message from this guy. And he says, by any chance, are you the same Jenny Lisk who worked for SA Tech 20, 20 some odd years ago? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. So anyway, they, they were trying to, I still had some stock from the, you know, they give me stock when I was an intern and yeah. instead of paying me and stuff like that. And I had a little tiny bit of stock. Um, and they were trying to like consolidate and like buy out the small shareholders. And they had tried to contact me a couple of years ago, but by this time I had moved a bunch of times and you know, they didn't have my email address or anything like that. Yeah. So anyway, this guy messages me on Facebook and he says, you know, I, I decided to try one last time to try to find you before we just like, I don't know what they do to like liquidate the, my holdings or something. Yeah. And so I kind of caught up with him a little bit and, and it was not the guy that I had worked for, but I kind of heard of him cause he had been involved on the board at that point. So anyway, nice guy. And he sent me a check for a couple thousand bucks out of the blue, yeah. um, which was lovely because yeah. I had, as I said, 20 years ago, I wrote them off and I, I figured the company had probably, you know, fallen apart and just ceased to exist. And it's true. They're not doing basketball floors, but they're doing nursing home and medical flooring. Wow. So, awesome. yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Um, interesting deal. What was it like moving cross country? Um, what was your husband doing? You know, how was yeah. that process? Well, um, so we were 26 and 27, um, you know, no kids, not homeowners, just, you know, kind of a perfect time for a, a move like that. And we went, um, as I say, with my job, and he quit his job here and um, looked for a job back there. And he was doing a marketing thing. Not, I'm not really sure how he landed with that, but as part of the move, um, you know, when they when a company moves you, especially back then, they're probably not as generous now. I don't know. You know, they paid for the moving truck, and they paid for airline tickets, and they paid for like someone to help us either buy a house or rent an apartment. And they paid for spousal job hunting assistance or something. Nice. And so yeah. he like went to that place and looked at listings and got his resume done and landed this job. But anyway, he um, ended up while we were there going to NYU and getting his master's in urban planning. Cool. And yeah. And so that was really cool. And I was always jealous because he got to go down to the city, you know, several times a week. We did not live in the city. Sadly, the company was headquartered in the suburbs and, um, we ended up buying a house in Yonkers, which is just north of the Bronx. Yeah. And um, so he would take the Metro North down to Grand Central, you know, three times a week or whenever he had classes and go down, down to NYU and hang out and do all that. And I was always stuck in the suburbs in the corporate office building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's what he ended up doing. And then he got a job with a planning company. After he finished that degree, got a job as an urban planner in Westchester County. Um, but then, and he ended up, he really wanted to come back to the West coast, um, as a, as an urban planner, apparently there's a lot of exciting things for urban planners happening in Oregon. I guess they're known for having good urban planning or something. Okay. And he 
got the idea that you know he really didn't want to be working in urban planning in, in New York. He wanted to be doing that out here and be a little closer to home. And um, so after five years back there, we ended up moving to um, Portland, Oregon. And uh, he, let's see, he got a job with a company in Portland. And I was able to actually keep my job and be remote. So I actually went in, yeah, I went into my boss and I was like, look, I'm going to have to quit. Like we just, you know, as a, well, family, I mean, the two of us, we didn't have kids still at that point, but you know, we, we making a decision, you know, personal decision to relocate. And so uh, sadly I'm going to have to quit. And he was like, Oh, so he comes back the next day and he said, well, what do you think? You know, what if you move out there and you keep working for us wow. here? Yeah. And I said, okay. Way ahead of you know? <laughs> well, this was now 2003. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing is that um, at the time I was on a project, a large transformation project. I was working on internal IT projects. And it was a large transformation project and we had internal consultants flying in every week from all over the country. Like they were, you know, staffed to our project. They were not regular employees, but they were staffed to our project flying in and out every single week. So it didn't seem maybe like quite as much Uh, of a stretch. And the deal kind of was, what if I moved to Oregon and I flew in once a month for a week? And I was like, okay, you know, and, not having kids at the time coming for a week didn't seem yeah. like too bad of a deal. And it'd be kind of fun to see everybody again. And, you know, yeah. plus it was kind of like, well, this was the deal or no job. Right. Yeah. So the funny thing is I did that monthly visit one time and then like budgets got changed and they were like, yeah, we, we, we're not going to have you fly here anymore. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, okay, that's cool. Right. And then I then the project got killed and then I got put on other projects for 15 more years. Um, and at some point we ended up moving back to Seattle here. So we were in Portland for five years. Cool. Um, yeah. When you got, um, you know, after you got married, um, did you guys redo your wills and, and things of that nature? Uh, no, we didn't have wills until we... Um, got our first kid okay um and then we're like oh my gosh we need a will Uh, because of like you know custody of child whatever child uh what do you call it like what happens to the kid if you both die yeah um so that's when we now should we have done it sooner yes probably but we didn't really have a you know complicated situation or anything we didn't have any dependents to plan for so it wasn't you know that's when it really became critical yeah um i guess yeah so um and then i guess you and from that point on i guess uh when did you have your first kid uh well we adopted both of our kids they were both born in korea and so we got the first one in 2005 and the second one in 2007 and we got each of them when they were infants so we went back two times um and uh yeah so that was, was that was when we were living in oregon what was that process like uh especially it, back then it, it's all paper right yes lots yeah. and lots and lots of paperwork <laughs> like it's yeah. a long process um there were 
I mean, it starts with like you go to an information session and they give you stuff and show you pictures and it's like, ooh. And then there's social worker visits. You know, social worker has to come to your house. I think she came several times. They have to do a report, like a long report about, I don't know. Well, there's different, there's some of it is kind of um, matter of fact, like they have to write up your house and whether it's safe for children and, you know, how many rooms it has and, you know, like kind of description kind of stuff. And then part of it is like, about the personal histories of each parent and, you know, about their job situations and then about like childcare plans and I just stuff like that. And they have to get recommendations from maybe three people, I think. And so they do all this, they write it, it's called a home study. It's a very long document with just a whole bunch of write up. And it's the social worker giving their opinion. Like, yes, we think we want to recommend this family or approve this family to adopt a child. And here's all the, you know, background information we're providing to back that up um and then so since this is an international adoption yeah there's all kinds of paperwork and bureaucracy on the u.s government side and the korean government side um to make everything happen but basically once you do that document called the home study then they submit that and then you kind of go in the queue and it's not like it's just a list like they go down and they say, okay, here's the next family, here's the next kid or whatever. But you kind of wait in a queue for a while until you get like, like in other words, you're not going to, if there's somebody who applied, you know, three months before you, you're not going to get a kid before them. Yeah. But if there's somebody, you know, applied a week before you or a week after you, or maybe even a month before you, I mean, they, they kind of try to match kids to families within a time frame, sort of. How, how long did you guys have to wait? Mm. Well, you know, I'd have to look it up to check. But basically, I mean, end to end, like from the time we went to an information session to the time we were flying to Korea on an airplane to bring our first one home, I yeah. think it was um, a year and two months. Like we went in January and then it was March of a year later that we went to get him. Yeah. Um, what, what, drew you, what drew you to uh, adoption? Uh, you know, we had struggles with infertility and, um, so we just, and we thought about doing IVF and just ended up deciding that we weren't comfortable with that. And so, um, we just, so let's start looking into adoption and, um, yeah, that's, you know, that's. What did, were you always thinking about international adoption or did that? Um, you know, I didn't think, well, both of us, I guess, didn't think we could handle like a potential domestic adoption that might fall through at the last minute. Like, yeah. and it, I don't know what the odds are of that happening, but it just, it seemed like the chances of like, you know, getting a match and getting excited and maybe getting all the way through you know, to the baby being born and then, and then something falling apart at the last minute. We just, after going through infertility, we just thought that that would just devastate us. Yeah. In hindsight, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but yeah. at the time, that's how we, that's how we felt. And the, the adoption process in, in Korea was known to be very stable and predictable and um, above board. Like there wasn't, you know, corruption involved or there wasn't a lot of like, um, 
you know, health issues, like the babies were generally healthy and young also that they, our son was six months old when we got him and our daughter was four months old when we got her. And so, and in some countries, the babies were, you know, a year, two years old. And so we just thought, you know, younger would be, would be preferable. And it, it seemed like a process. I mean, even if there was a lot of paperwork and there was, um, it seemed doable and predictable and not likely to end in, you know, disaster or something (laughs) how was the process uh for i mean you and and, i mean obviously uh, i don't know if you can speak totally for your kids but just of growing up and you know maybe going to school functions and you know the two of you not being of the same race and was was it clear that were people looking at you differently or, or things of that nature? I don't think so. I mean, you know, in Seattle, there's, there's a lot of Asian people and it's a fairly tolerant, you know, accepting oh, area. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've, you know, I hear sometimes in other communities where there may be very few Asian people than the, you know, the kids maybe stick out a little more or something. And, um, and so I just, you know, there were a lot of Asian kids in my kid's school and, um, I don't know, it just wasn't, that was never really, and, you know, of course it's obvious that they're adopted because you have two white parents and two Korean kids. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not, yeah, it's yeah. not like somebody yeah. could say, although, you know, some, um, I do remember I got at the, I went to the grocery store and I had my son who was this little like nine month old baby, Maybe it was when he first came home. Maybe it was six months. I think because yeah. I was like brand new son and it was in like the front pack thing, you know, into the grocery store and I'm checking out and the friendly clerk is making conversation and she's like, oh, cute baby. I'm, oh, thank you. You know, and she's like, oh, is his dad Asian? Because, you know, because it was just me yeah. and my son, right? Yeah, the yeah. other parents not there. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. he doesn't look half Asian, but okay, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, but that, I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but, um, yeah. yeah. For um, anyone out there that might be considering adoption or, you know, wanting to do it, I guess, were there any pieces of advice uh, that you have looking back on it? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, now there's an awfully long pause in your recording, so maybe no, you that's might have fine. to. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Any pieces of advice? I don't know. I, you know, I do think it's helpful to get to know other families who uh, also were formed through adoption, particularly, um, you know, families with kids from the same country um, or any type of you know international adoption, just because it's nice for the kids to see other families that are like theirs and similar situation yeah and when we lived in portland we were better at this because because we adopted them when we lived in portland and because there was a community there there were like events for adoptive families there was a camp out an annual camp out for um, families through this agency and they weren't all korean adoption kids but at least three quarters of them were adopted from korea and yeah. they, the others were from some other countries too, and they were everybody was welcome. Um, it's just that you know, many, many, many families were white parents and Asian kids, and so everybody kind of had a good time bonding and you know and stuff. And 
and there were some Korean like heritage kind of events like for the Lunar New Year, you know, with the traditional food or dancing or things like that, you know. And so when our kids were little, you know, like two, three, you know, we still lived in Portland, we're going to some of these things. I think, oh, well, we're going to, you know, make sure we do this kind of stuff with our kids. Or then we moved here when they were here to Seattle when they were four and almost four and almost two. Yeah. And then we kind of didn't really have that same community here and we never really like went looking for it it was kind of harder to i don't know we had other things on our plate you know didn't really get plugged into that so much here but i do think um i mean i'm still friends with some of the families in portland that um you know that we get to know in those early days Uh, in fact one of the families she just put her son's picture he just had his 17th birthday and i'm thinking oh my goodness and this is big you know handsome teenage 17 year old going to be a high school senior i thought i met you when you were like yeah. he was like well, i don't know one and a half he's a year older than my son and and yeah. i when we were waiting i met with this woman who's now my friend and her then one-year-old yeah. you know yeah. and now he's all grown up so um yeah i do think that it is helpful to to you know try to be deliberate about being in touch with families um yeah. formed similarly yeah how did being a parent change your life hmm uh well i think anybody who becomes a parent in any way i mean it's 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 a whole new ball game i mean there's no longer just you know two adults who have each other and also can be independent right can function independently and can function together now you're throwing into the mix a third or then a fourth person who's little and needs constant everything and you know it's um you know, and we were both working. And so we had, um, you know, childcare, like the logistical things amp up. Um, and we actually, I took, well, I took three months off when each kid came home. Yeah. Um, but then I was back to work, but actually when my son came home, I took three months and then my husband took, he dropped down to part-time, I think. And then, yeah. so we, he only had, like, he only had to go to daycare like two days a week and my husband was home, you know, so, and I was working from home too. So, yeah. um, anyway, yeah. And it's just, you know, it opens you to a whole different world of people because you start meeting all the parents of your kids' friends, you know, especially when your kids go to school, um, then you start meeting all those parents and, and then all of a sudden you're spending your time at soccer games and basketball games and in scouting and you're like, you know, it, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I read a, a book like besides a children's picture book for like, I don't know, at least a decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I guess talk to us more about uh, your husband and maybe uh when you found out um about the brain cancer and things of that nature yeah yeah well you know the really weird thing is i mean it's five years ago right now is when we were just kind of starting to deal with all this and um so it was may of 2015 um when you know everything everything had been perfectly normal right so he had a job i had a job we had uh 10 year old and an eight year old and a dog and a house and a busy life. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, so it was a, it was a Friday night and I 
you know, took my son, dropped him off with the Boy Scouts, come home with my daughter. My husband's sitting on the couch and he has this funny look on his face. And I'm like, what's the matter? Like, is everything okay? And I, I didn't like, I really I thought it looked like something was bothering him. Like something had gone wrong during the day. He was upset about something like that was the kind of look, you know, that, that something's wrong here. And he said, well, I've been feeling, I was just feeling a little bit dizzy and I've been feeling a little bit dizzy off and on for the past few days. I said, well, that's kind of weird. Okay. Dizzy. Yeah. I mean, what's dizzy, right? And I mean, I, I tell you what, my first thought was not this time next year, I'm going to be a widowed parent. Yeah. Right. I mean, and so I sat down next to him on the couch, asking him questions like, what's going on? What are you noticing? How often is this happening? Like, do you have any other symptoms? Right. Like, and there was nothing that seemed really urgent. I mean, he wasn't fainting and he wasn't, I don't know, nothing. Right. He's just a little dizzy. Yeah, okay, maybe, maybe you're yeah. tired. Maybe you're dehydrated. I don't know, right? I mean, I mean that dizzy, could also fine. Be vertigo, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, maybe you need some yeah. more sleep or maybe yeah. stressful week. I don't know, right? Yeah. So, and because it was a Friday, we were going to just like kick back and get takeout and just, you know. So I was like, okay, stay here. I'm going to go get the food, right? Come back 20 minutes later. And I'm like, okay, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling, right? Like, because I'm like, I can get a check in here, you know, make sure I'm on yeah. top of things. And he looks at me and he says, oh, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. He said, but, you know, I felt a little dizzy the last few days. And the way he looked at me, I was like, I said, you know, you just told me that. 20 minutes you know, we were sitting here on the couch 20 minutes ago. We had a whole discussion about calling your doctor Monday and blah, 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 blah. We just had this discussion. And he looks at me and he says, we did. Oh man. Okay. And then I'm like, whoa, like, okay, what? Like, and then this was a conversation where it wasn't like he was distracted and not paying attention. It, we were both engaged, right? Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like you could really forget it. No, that's weird. So, you know, we just had food, whatever. The rest of the weekend, I kept watching, but he was mostly normal. It wasn't like, so, and I'm thinking here, okay, this is weird. Something's wrong. But then he's totally normal. Right. So I'm like, yeah. okay, am I overreading the situation? Am I imagining things? Maybe he didn't really say that. Maybe I'm whatever. Right. But then a little something would be weird. I'm like, wow. That, but then he'd be normal again. So anyway, he calls his doctor Monday, comes home and he says, yeah, I've got an appointment. It's like three weeks out. I'm like, oh, three, that doesn't sound good. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, when you call your doctor and you say, well, I've been a little dizzy lately, you know, they're not like, oh, rush right in, yeah. right? Just like I wasn't like, oh, I didn't take him to the ER or something because it didn't seem like anything urgent, yeah. right? So anyway, fast forward to the following Sunday. So like 10 days after this first dizziness, right? Yeah. And it was Mother's Day. We were at a hike and we get to the midpoint. We're at a waterfall waiting, hanging out. He looks at me and he says, where are we staying tonight? And I looked at him and I'm like super calm on the outside, but inside I'm like, what? Like, what, what, what is going on here? Right. Yeah. So I said, well, where do you think we stayed last night? And he said, oh, I don't know. Some cabin in Oregon. 
and we were just at a local hike like yeah you know 30 minutes from our house and we're going back to our house you know so i was like okay this you know i had spent these last 10 days like trying to assess do i need to intervene do i need to call the doctor to like but he was he was going to work he was taking the kids to school in the morning it was mostly normal but by this point i was like okay this i'm stepping in so i ended up calling the doctor talk to the nurse do the whole like reiterate every crazy thing he had said and i was convinced that um it was a medication side effect because he'd been taking this minor like unrelated medication and i had been looking at the side effects you know googling right and you know when you look at side effects on a a list some official list there's like the common side effects and then there's the uncommon side effects and then there's like the super rare side effects yeah so on the super rare list was cognitive confusion okay so i was convinced oh all right great you know maybe it's not common but it's on the list we're going to go to the doctor we're going to say oh he's been saying all these crazy things and the doctor will say yeah let's switch your medicine and you'll everything will be good right well we go in and i relate all this to the doctor and the doctor says let's get an mri of your brain this is a primary care doctor, right? Yeah. This is just like we called his regular doctor. Yeah. So we get the, you know, we go downstairs and, you know, normally, you know, they give their normal spiel like, okay, you're going to come back and then go home. We'll call you in 24 or 48 hours, right? Well, at the end of the time, he comes back out and the MRI person says, actually, the doctor wants to see you. You should go back upstairs now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is, but this is not a good thing. Yeah. That's not how they do things, right? I've had plenty of MRIs for my knee or yeah. whatever, wrist surgery, right? They always send you home and then they call you and tell you, oh yeah, you yeah. need wrist surgery, right? Yeah. So we go back upstairs and the doctor says, um, there's something really wrong with your brain. I don't know what it is. Excuse me. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't want to scare you but I think you should know what you might be dealing with. It might be glioblastoma. Now I never heard of glioblastoma, right? Yeah. But anyway, he says, you need to go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow. So we're like, what? Right? And I sit back on the little visitor's chair in the room and I close my eyes and I'm like, are we really actually having this conversation? Because this is not like my life, right? This is not, this can't be happening, right? That we came in here like, oh, let's just change this medicine and, you know, we're good. And now all of a sudden you're telling me that his brain is got a huge, massive problem. So we go home, we Google glioblastoma. Well, we find out it's a super aggressive form of brain cancer that is basically a death sentence. Yeah. So, um, and at the time, so Teddy Kennedy, Senator Kennedy died of glioblastoma somehow I hadn't, it was a while ago, so I hadn't like noticed or remembered that. But right around the time my husband was diagnosed, maybe a week later or something, Bo Biden, Joe Biden's son died of, well, they, they said brain cancer. They didn't say what type initially. Yeah. Later they did come out and say it was glioblastoma, but just based on everything they described and all that, I, I was pretty sure that's you know what Bo Biden had. And so, you know, with that being all over the news, at the time and what we read about it, um, you know, this was clearly really bad. And by the way, so more recently, John McCain, it's the same type of brain cancer that he had and died of, well, like two years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a, 
a few people survive it. A few. Like, I actually, I know somebody now who I met a couple years ago. She had glioblastoma, like, 15 years ago and survived. But I don't know anybody else. Talk to us about that night, though. Coming back, you know, the car ride and that night trying to go to bed. I mean, yeah. before the meeting with the neurosurgeon. Yeah. Did you even sleep? <laughs> I don't even. Well, we were so exhausted. Man. Yeah, okay. we did. Because, okay. I mean, we Googled it and we're like looking at each other like, whoa, like this is bad, right? Yeah. But there was nothing really. We were both just like too overwhelmed to I think even like talk about it wasn't really anything to talk about right it's just like okay well we'll go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow and see what he says and just like crashed because it was just so overwhelming um and so we went to the neurosurgeon and he looks at the MRIs and you know everything and he says yeah we're doing brain surgery now tomorrow the next day wow so now all of a sudden yeah so all of a sudden we're you know, this is a little under two weeks from him initially saying, yeah, I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. Now he's having brain surgery. Can you also give context to everybody about, you know, his age at this point? Yeah, he uh, was 43 at that point. And then he had a birthday, so he was 44 when he died. Yeah. And so the kids, yeah, and he's I was a year younger than young. that. Yeah. yeah, and the kids were 8 and 10 and then 9 and 11 when he died. Yeah. Um so yeah and you know the thing is he was never the same after that initial surgery so you know i described some of the confusion in the first 10 days or so but as soon as he had the surgery like he just immediately got even way more confused than that like confused all the time yeah so there was no, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you're lucky. At least you had eight months where he was still alive. And I'm like, ah, well, not really. Because you imagine that if you have eight months and somebody's terminally ill, you're going to have a bucket list and you're going to travel and you're going to have meaningful conversations and you're going to do things as a family. And maybe the person's going to, I don't know, write, write a life story for the kids to read someday or who knows right you just imagine yeah. that there'd be at least some time to do some things yeah but because he was so confused and because we were dealing with so many medical complications like there was no um let's go do a clinical trial or let's you know any of that kind of stuff it was just surgery infection more surgery stay in the hospital stay in the nursing facility, be home, go back to the ER a bazillion times. Like he had um, cerebral spinal fluid leaking out of his head at multiple points, you know, which ended up being ER visits and then readmissions. The craziest time was, um, well, he, so he had, they called it craniotomy, which is basically like cut your skull open, right? So the original surgery, the idea was to try to take out as much of the tumor as they could and to get a biopsy. Initially, we only knew that it was a tumor. We yeah. didn't know if it was cancerous tumor so they had to do the craniotomy well it turns out that it wasn't like a like you hope if you have a tumor that it would be a, a lump that you can cut around and take out right but it wasn't that it was more like 
woven through the brain fabric, all these cells. So you can't like cut that out. Yeah. Right. And so they basically just got enough for a biopsy and said, yes, it's cancerous. And, you know, put the piece of bone back in his head and stitched him back up. Well, then it didn't heal properly. I don't really know why, but for whatever reason, didn't heal properly. So this ended up leaking. Some, it started out being just like little leaking. At one point it was like squirting, you know. So then when this happens, you go back to the ER, right? Yeah. And there was one time he was in the hospital inpatient, you know, staying there for a few days because of the leaking. They got it to the point where it wasn't leaking. Not like it did anything, but he was there for a few days and it stopped leaking. So they discharged him. I remember this. It was a Saturday. So I'm over there for a long time doing all the discharge, all the stuff. Transport guy comes, takes us down to the car. We get in the car. I'm taking him back to the, at that point he was staying at a skilled nursing facility. I can't remember why. Maybe he had an infection or something. Anyway, um, get in the car, drive back across the bridge to the east side over here, drive to the nursing facility, gets out of the car, walks into the lobby, sits down, puddle on the floor of this leak that supposedly stopped leaking, which is why they discharged him. Yeah. Leaks out. So I'm like, all right. So I called then the, um, the the uh, on-call person for the neurosurgeon's office but because it was a saturday they weren't you know in the office right yeah so she says okay he's gonna have to be readmitted and you're gonna have to take him back to the er yeah because that was the only way on a saturday to admit him was through er yeah so we go back to the er we're there for like hours yeah you know, and of course, you know, they did everything they could to expedite it, right? The, the, the PA calls down and says, this is our patient. He's coming in. This is why you don't need to bother with, you know, figuring out what's wrong. We already know what's wrong. Just admit him. But just admit him is still multiple hours. Yeah. And so we do all that. And the, the, the real kicker was when they finally admitted him, he ended up in the exact same room he had been discharged from earlier that day. Wow. And we get there and the nurse, same nurse, because who'd been on the day yeah. before, right, says, wait a minute, weren't you like here last night? <laughs> yeah. And then, but then we, because he was on chemo pills and they, so the chemo pills I had to bring from home, the regular medicines they had in the hospital, but the chemo pills, you have to like check them in because they have to verify them, make sure you're not bringing weird drugs into the hospital or you're sneaking something in. It's just like the whole process. I'm like, we just got discharged from this room today and now we're back in this room <laughs> just yeah. like that was kind of the height of the craziness of the of the i don't know the complications and, and stuff we were just dealing with that just seemed to not really stop for eight months um the whole you know the whole time that he was sick there was something or other like that going on did in that initial um surgery by the neurosurgeon uh did he give or he or she give uh an estimate of time for how much they estimated he had? Um, well, kind of. So there were two doctors involved, the neurosurgeon and the neuro-oncologist. So they were kind of tag-teamed it. Um, and the so it was the neuro-oncologist who was kind of the lead on the case. And so she, when she met with us then to, with the results of the biopsy and said, yes, it's cancerous. And so then I said, you know, 
I don't remember how I asked it, but basically like, what kind of time does he have? And so she looked at him and said, do you want to know? And he said, no. So then she and I stepped out into the other room and she said, well, the average life expectancy for glioblastoma is 13 months. Um, she said, I can't tell you what it's going to be in his case, but that's, you know, that's the average and that's, you know, for planning purposes, you know, what, that, that's an, a rough idea. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then it ended up being eight, eight months. And, you know, I kind of, I don't know, of course I didn't know how long it was going to be, but I just remember feeling like 13 months. I didn't think that, that he would have that much time. Um, I just kind of knew in my gut that, and I think it's because there were so many complications and infections and things that it just, there was never, I remember, you know, I said, well, what about clinical trials? Cause you always hear about that. Someone gets yeah. cancer and then they get signed up for a trial and then they fly off to who knows where, and then they enroll in something. They're like, yeah, no, he's not, you know, there's nothing that he's eligible for. Um, and you know, that, even if it he, was just too, it, was, it progressed too much or. I'm not 100% clear. I think it, between all the complications he was having and between um, a lot of times in order to be eligible for a clinical trial, you have to first do the standard treatment. And then when that doesn't work, then you might be eligible. Okay. But he hadn't been through the standard treatment yet. And by the time he got through the standard treatment, like so the standard treatment basically, at least at that point, consisted of chemo, but... It was kind of a low dose chemo pill. It was not like um, going to a chemo center and getting something, you know, infused or whatever. Yeah. So, so at home p pills and then uh, radiation was supposed to be five days a week for six weeks. It'd be a normal course radiation, you know, in the skull. Um, but he had so much, basically it took us twice as long to finish the, the 30 days of radiation because because he was in the hospital so many times and in the ER so many times and having a you know another surgery and all these things that kept interrupting radiation so by the time you know, he did finish ultimately the 30 courses of radiation but it was stretched out way longer than it was supposed to be uh, excuse me talk to us about your life and how it changes in that you know in this time period i mean did you take a leave of absence from work? How do you still be a mother? Uh, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was lucky at work. Um, my boss was incredibly supportive and, and um, basically I didn't have to take like a formal leave of absence. He just kind of made it okay for me to like, not really work for well it was probably three or four months maybe yeah. um and i did i did like there were a couple things that i did each week that i did like flexibly when i could fit them in like i didn't go to any meetings i didn't do emails i didn't do you know but there were a couple things i kind of that had to be done each week that i squeezed in but it was very much not you know full-time working or anywhere near it um and then, so that was like from, from the time he got diagnosed in mid-May through September 1st. And I think September 1st is when I started back. But then, you know, I started back, but I wasn't working full time. Um, 
I was going to meetings and I was doing stuff and I was having, by that point he was um, home and bedridden uh, because he ended up falling in the shower at one point when he was yeah. home, he, because he was so confused, he, he would like wake up at odd times and think that it was morning. It was time to get dressed to go to work. And um, he was supposed to use a shower stool, you know, to sit on, to be safer, but he didn't remember and didn't like the shower stool. And we had taken it out of the shower because it seemed the physical therapist agreed it would be like more likely that he would trip on it if he wasn't going to sit on it, you know? And so we took it out. And anyway, he woke up like, I don't know, five in the morning and I heard him getting in the shower and I was so tired and I was like, okay, I'll just sit here and listen and make sure there's no problems, you know, like I just kind of monitor by ear, you know? And then all of a sudden I heard this thud Yeah. and then he kind of like, you know, cried out and I went in there and he had, he had fallen so I turned off the water and like got some towels on him so it wouldn't be cold. But then I'm like, now what do I do? Right? Like I, I didn't think I could lift him, but I also thought even if I tried, I might like hurt him. Like if his back was, you know, whatever. Anyway, so I called 911 and they sent an ambulance. It turned out he had broken a rib. Um, and so from that point on, then he was, um, we got a hospital bed in the family room and he was bedridden. Um, but you asked about work. So my point was he was home and I had like friends or family members coming kind of like each morning, kind of for like half a day just to hang out with him, watch TV with him, get him a snack, whatever. Well, I um, got some work done um, because he was, you know, like he was bedridden and he needed to have someone kind of hang out with him. How, are, how was it trying to be a mother? I mean, because obviously you're emotionally exhausted sad you're thinking about you know the rest of your life um you know potentially without him but then you also have to be strong you know for kids who you know the kids that they're playing with are happy and you know they you know they might still have soccer games how how was that process yeah yeah well you know okay so this is kind of why i ended up starting this podcast i the parenting part was hard um and the biggest thing was that i felt lost like i didn't know how to be a parent in uh, a crisis like this or with kids who are grieving or with you know like i at that point i'd been a parent for 10 years, I guess, but it had been pretty much like normal run of the mill, you know, stuff, nothing really too outrageous. Right now, all of a sudden here was a huge deal. And I didn't know how to like what to say to the kids or what not to say to the kids, or if I do or don't say this or that, is it going to make it worse? Is How do I not destroy them? Right. This is obviously going to be a huge, um, part of their story and impact on their life is no way it's not going to impact them but how do i how do i have it not destroy destroy them or how do they come out of this somehow whole adults later down the road right and part of the problem was i didn't even know who could tell me like what i needed to know right and like i remember early on so when they we went to the doctor and they said it is cancerous um, you know, at that point, all we knew, 
is that he had a tumor and he was having surgery. So we told the kids he has a tumor, he's having surgery. We don't know if it's cancer or not. You know, they're going to do this test and then we'll know and then we'll see what the next steps, right? So they tell us that it's cancer. Meanwhile, at this point, I had already started the Caringbridge Journal. So I was updating, you know, my world, my corner of the world through this thing. And we had a lot of people following along because we had a, a large community at the kids school the principal had asked if you know if he could share the link to the journal with the broader school community and i you know said that was fine um and you know a lot of family friends old friends new friends whoever right people following along so i had posted okay we got the diagnosis today it's glioblastoma and like a link to like what glioblastoma is right so then that night my friend calls me up and she says, um, when are you going to tell your kids? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. And I think she could tell that, like, what I wasn't saying was, like, maybe I could just avoid this altogether. <laughs> like, maybe I could just not tell them, right? Yeah. And she said, and she kind of pushed me, and I'm glad she did. She said, you know, we told our kids at dinner tonight that he had cancer. And they asked if he was going to die. And she said, we didn't want to lie to them. So we told them what we knew, which was, yes, you know, the doctors can't fix this and he's going to die. And she said, the thing is, this same conversation is probably happening at every dinner table in our school community that night. Yeah. So like, she's like, all your kids' friends are going to, not all, many of your kids' friends tomorrow will know. And you don't want your kids to hear about it in the playground tomorrow from their friends. She's like, they need to hear about it from you tonight yeah and i was like oh, okay you're right right like and so i was glad yeah you know, i was glad she pushed me because i probably would have been tempted to defer it and one of the things that i've then subsequently learned is that it is so much better it's so important to be honest with kids about these really hard things and to tell them what you know and tell them what you don't know and to help find out things if you can or tell them you know we're gonna know more after x happens and i'll let you know i'll fill you in you know like the doctors are gonna do x y and z and then they're gonna do another test and then we'll have more information and i'll keep you updated like you know but sometimes parents well every, every parent wants to protect their kids right protect them from all kinds of things, you know, skinning their knee on the playground or running out in the middle of the street. Yeah. Or, you know, you want to try to, I mean, it's awful, right? This kid's other parent is going to die and you're trying to protect them. But the problem is you can't protect them because they're going to die. So the only thing it turns out that makes that worse is if you then are not like honest with them about it. Because what I've learned now from the people, I guess, you know, interviewed experts, grief experts and all this stuff is that the, the, the kids really need to be able to trust their surviving parent, that that's really critical. And it's critical not only for their own parent-child relationship, but also as the basis of all future relationships with other human beings, whether they're partner relationships, friend relationships, work relationships, you know, anything. Like, if that kid can't trust that surviving parent, it's just, 
it makes a terrible problem worse. Yeah. And you know, when you think it can't get any worse, right? It can't because either way, the other parent's dead. You can't, you can't change that, but then you can, you know, you lie to them. And then, so sometimes people will, um, you know, be tempted to, if there's a, if there's a difficult cause of death, a suicide, a drug overdose, a homicide, sometimes people will be tempted to, you know, maybe tell the kids, oh, you know, dad had a heart attack or something that sounds, I don't know, better or easier or less scary or something. But inevitably, at some point or other, they're going to find out, you know, whether it's next week or next year or when they're 25 years old, they're going to find out sometime. They're going to Google themselves or Google something and they're going to find it. There's going to be some you know, other adult in the family or in the community who doesn't know that the kids don't know, who then slips up and says something, something's going to come out at some point. Yeah. And then that kid, like it just shatters that. Cause then they're like, I lost my dad and my mom lied to me. Right. Yeah. And so, but I've only learned that now later from going out and interviewing people and, asking all these questions and saying how how what do widow parents need to know and how do you do this and you know that's what I was kind of looking for at the time right when we started back to your question of like how was it being a parent and 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 I just I really felt lost and I I fortunately had a few this friend that I described you know this called me up this particular night and challenged me on this I had another friend whose husband had died of the same brain cancer five years previously who has uh, several children and she was a good source of advice um, on some stuff and later much later we ended up getting a children's grief counselor from the hospice organization was able to start coming to the house and that was helpful but um, yeah it was it was tricky and you know I because I got some of that advice early on I was I never lied to them and I was always honest with them but there's still things I wish I had done more or better or whatever, like, um, you know, I, I wish I had initiated more conversations with them, like asking them, yeah, this must be really hard for you and trying to get them to talk about it. You know, as we went through, I think I was so, I was juggling so many things, right? I was juggling all the logistics. So I was, I was instantly a single parent, right? Yeah. My husband wasn't doing any parenting. I was caring for him, right? And I was doing all the talking to the doctors and talking to the nurses and scheduling the radiation and giving him all his medicine and, you know, and doing all these things um, for all of his care and, you know, caring for the kids. And we had a tremendous amount of help from um school school community and neighbors and parent uh, friends and you know all kinds of people who would give them rides and bring dinners and um you know handle logistical things getting them to basketball practice or whatever um and i think i was so relieved that all that was kind of seemed to be going well enough you know the kids got to school every day the kids were fed every day they got to their sports games they, if they had a birthday party they had to go to, someone took them and sometimes even like went and got a present for them to give them because I would, didn't have time to go shopping or, you know, like yeah, yeah. that kind of, and I was at the hospital a lot, right? Yep. 
and if I if I couldn't be home, the kids were either with a family member or a friend. So I knew they were cared for. That wasn't a, a problem. But what I wish I had done was then kind of open those dialogues as we'd gone along and said, you know, when we were playing sorry earlier, like we tried to play some kids games, which are still hard for him to do. And my daughter would like be coaching, you know, she's eight, right? She's coaching him how to play this, how to play sorry, right? Which is yeah. a pretty basic children's game. And she was so cheerful and okay, dad, why don't you move your piece here? And oh, you got to whatever number you move here, you capture this guy, whatever. Um, I really wish I had looped back with her then that night and said, gosh, you know, I noticed that you were doing such a good job helping dad with that. How was that for you? And start to, you know, address, process, deal with, talk about whatever, some of those emotions sooner in the process, because I think it just made things harder eventually, um, you know, to not have started those conversations sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the I, things actually, Oh, sorry. No, what? No, continue. Well, I, I'm, I'm actually working on a memoir right now. And that's one of the things that I'm reflecting on is where could I have done some of these things better? Right. Like, so I think I mentioned, yeah, that I had a caring bridge journal where I was updating everybody as to what was going on. And I realized that that could be kind of a, uh, the backbone of a, a memoir. And so I'm going through, it's kind of like the books in three parts. Part one kind of sets it up. Part two is the journal entries plus reflections now five years later. So, you know, like entry, reflection, yep. entry, reflection, boom, boom, boom. Yep. And then part three is like the end part. So as I'm going through writing these reflections now, I'm kind of adding more, I don't know if it's context, but you know, like this was happening here and now, okay, here's kind of what I think about it. Like this part was fine, but this other part, I really wish X or whatever. Um, and I think it's, I hope that it helps people in my position not to feel maybe quite so lost. Like at least yeah. there's some kind of, you know, peer, you know, my my experience but also then now um with what i've learned from the experts that i've been able to interview kind of infusing that back onto that for what i've learned from that yeah i, I just want to say from an outside perspective I, I wouldn't be like i mean you have a great perspective on it on you know wanting to challenge yourself more you know maybe five years ago but i mean it's a you're going through a lot so yeah so hard on yourself in terms of you know doing more and and things of that nature because you know i think it's it's, it's a tough situation um you know and I, I, not, I try not to not easy to, to yeah. have everything together in that type, yeah. no type certainly situation. and i'm not saying this to say that like i'm beating myself up about it i'm saying this too because i know i I was doing the best that I could and I had an awful lot on my plate. Yeah. I just think that if I go back now and look, there's things that, that I can identify that might help other people going forward. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. Um, so I guess, do you want to talk about the last couple of weeks, uh, 
that he was alive and things of that nature and you know what that process was like you know sure yeah i mean so he was on hospice at home for the last well from mid-september to the 8th of january so it's that a little less than four months Okay. A little, little under four months, he was on yeah. hospice at home. Most of that time bedridden. Actually, I think all that time. Well, not entirely. I mean, pretty close. Um, and that was, you know, that was hard because I was the primary caregiver. And somehow, I don't know, I thought that when you have hospice, you have like hospice caregivers here all the time or something, but you don't. Oh, okay. So there's a, a hospice nurse who comes as needed. So as needed in the beginning was like once a week coming to check in, get updates, take his blood pressure, check on medications, order new medications if they're needed, just kind of routine once a week visits. Towards the end, that increased in frequency. Um, and then there was a hospice uh, nurse's aide uh, who came to do like a well at first it was five days a week then it dropped down to three days a week to do like a like a sponge bath and you know that kind of like just hygiene kind of stuff yeah but you know she'd be here for like an hour doing that right so it wasn't like someone who's here all day and i could work or take a break or get something else done or shopping or anything you know it's just someone who's here for an hour so that was good but you know um but yeah, they don't have people who just are here. It's, and so I don't know how people do it if they don't have a a family caregiver who, you know, can step in or if they don't have the money to hire. Uh, I mean, you know, round the clock caregivers are expensive. Um, and it, at one point I was able to convince the insurance company to pay for feel like it was like 12 hours a week maybe of of a caregiver yeah which was really helpful because um i think i had them come like on sunday afternoons and i don't know tuesday nights or monday nights or something so it was at least like every week i could have a time when somebody would be here take a step back i could go even if i like took the kids somewhere to do something or even if i just went walking or anything where I didn't have to be like the one who was, yeah. you know. Um, so anyway, he was bedridden after the, well, not originally, he, he broke the rib, but I was still trying to like get him up to go to the bathroom. And it just was incredibly difficult because he was in so much pain that, you know, I was trying to get him up out of bed, but he was in pain walking and then he was confused so he wasn't walking to the bathroom and it was just really frustrating for me and physically taxing for me like my back was killing me and i'm like i can't i can't do this like i there was a point where i was like i i've been doing this now for six months or whatever and i just i, I don't think I, i'm done i can't i cannot handle this and i called to see if there was like a hospice facility that might be able to have him be there to care for him and i'm still not really clear why there wasn't is the short version of the story and i'm not really clear why there wasn't but anyway that so i was like all right i have to figure this out and at that point we had a hospital bed and eventually they he just became bedridden and so since i didn't have to get him 
out of bed anymore that helped a lot because because he had so much pain with the broken rib like getting him up was just impossible so anyway it was you know the last couple of months on hospice at home was just a lot of I mean every day felt like a a month like same thing every day medication schedule medication like a bazillion times a day because there were all these medicines he needed a, a shot in his side every night I had to give him a shot like an actual like a needle like a shot yeah. right yeah yeah um and I, you know I'm not a nurse or anybody who's trained to you know but I had to I had to learn a lot of things yeah um and he had a you know a catheter so then the bag had to be emptied and because he needed you know food all the time and the tv was on all the time by now it was you know holiday season because he died the beginning of january so i remember the hallmark channel was on like constantly because something needed to be on for him to watch and anybody who was sitting with him to watch it's not like it's not like we were having meaningful conversations and it's not like we were playing cards and enjoying an activity like the only thing really to do was watch movies on the hallmark channel or watch the food network he liked that you know yeah um by then i guess it was i guess the seahawks were still playing so i mean once a week we got a game that would take up some time on the day right at least when it was baseball season Actually, I was just writing this section in the memoir last night. Yeah. Um, in the summer and the early fall, when he was in the hospital so much, it was baseball season. Well, yeah. Baseball season is great. A great time to be in the hospital because the Mariners play almost every single day. Yeah. And it's always on TV. If they're home or if they're away, they're always going to be on TV. And a baseball game takes a long time. Yeah. It's a great thing to do because in the hospital, you're sitting around doing nothing for a lot of time. Right. And so if you got a baseball game to watch, you're doing something together, watching the baseball game. Yeah. Um, but once baseball season was over, you know, by the time he was at home here on hospice, you're lucky to get one football game a week and then, you know, try to fill the time other ways. <clears throat> how's, how's, uh, how's he doing during this time period? I mean, it, was he, you know, at the beginning, I'm, I'm sure he was more conscious of what was going on and then, later on did he sort of become more confused or was he still aware of the circumstances so that's an interesting question um yes he got more confused as time went on but also he always even from the beginning forgot that he was sick or he kind of knew that he was sick but he didn't remember what he had and he didn't remember that he was dying Mm. um so And it was because of the, you know, the cognitive confusion. So even though he was in the, you know, I described the meeting earlier where the neuro-oncologist said, you know, we got the biopsy back and it is cancer. And I asked how long and he said he didn't want to know. Um, we He was there for that discussion. He was part of that. And in the, at the moment, he, I think, understood what we were talking about. But later or the next day or whatever, he didn't remember any of that. And at one point, one of these ER visits you know, when you go into the ER and the doctor usually asks the patient, you know, what's happening, right? And doesn't look to the spouse who's standing there, right? They ask the patient, oh, why are you here? What's going on, right? So the doctor's asking him and and he's, oh, you know, he says something. He says, I think I have cancer. And the doctor says, where's your cancer? And he's like, I don't know, like the liver or the lungs or 
something. I don't know what he said. Not the brain. Yeah. And I'm standing in the background going, no, no, you need to ask me what's going on because you're getting all the wrong answers. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and you know, it was like, it, at some point it was like, I didn't, there was no point in reminding him what was going on. It's like, cause it would just be kind of unnecessary and cruel. Like I never, yeah. I never lied to him and I never concealed anything, but there was no point in reminding him every single day. Oh, you're dying because that would just make him miserable. And then he'd forget anyway. I'd have to tell him 5,000 times if I was going to try to do that. There was no, you know, like at one point he was asking where our dog was. And I was like, Oh, Daisy, she's right there. It's like, no, no, the other dog. And I'm like, there's no other dog. Oh, that Daisy, she's the dog. No, no, the other dog. I'm like, there's, and so then th this was early enough on that I was still super frustrated by this. And I kind of like went in the other room and I silently to myself was like, you know, like, and then I stepped back out and I'm like, this is Daisy. There's no other dog, you know, but I could not convince him that she was the only dog. And in hindsight, I think he was probably remembering either a dog we had previously had, or maybe even a dog from his childhood, something. Yeah. So I guess, you know, to your point about, I mean, how was he doing? He actually was, was generally pleasant and friendly and cooperative. He wasn't like, you know, upset or because he didn't remember what was going on, you know, and he, he was pleasant to be around and would, you know, we couldn't have meaningful conversations, but he could, you know, say hello and people would drop by to um, bring food or something. And if it was somebody that he knew, one of his colleagues or an old friend or something, I would always, you know, they'd, they'd step in and chat with him because why not? He was just sitting around doing nothing, um, watching TV or whatever. And, but I would always say, oh, Dennis, you remember so-and-so? And he'd be like, oh, yeah. But I, I'm never sure if he, like, I said that because I wasn't sure if he remember, would remember them. Yeah. You know, and so I went to kind of like cue him a little bit. But um, yeah, as we got closer to the end, he got more confused and had more pain. We get, he gets some infections, um, you know, so dealing with that kind of stuff was, is, you know, not fun for anyone, you know, him for him. And, you know, and I'm, you know, times we had to have the on-call hospice nurse come because the regular nurse comes scheduled. But then if you call like it, it's two in the morning and there's a problem, you can call and they'll send an on-call nurse to deal with, you know, whatever's come up. Yeah. Um, so we had to do that a few times and yeah. And then by the end, yeah, I had to learn to adapt because he had all these pills, which I was giving him, a million pills a day but then towards the end he wouldn't swallow the pills like it wasn't like he was refusing i think he just didn't understand so he would just hold them in his mouth right so then i found out amazon has a pill crusher that you can buy that you know i think i got amazon to deliver it like same day delivery on christmas eve or something it was right. like i don't know 200 dollar pill crusher but i was desperate like you know, and so I, I had to adapt, right? Because if you're like, oh my God, he's not taking his pills and he has to take his pills. Yeah. And you try cajoling and persuading and, and, and whatever, and he's not swallowing them, then you have to crush them up and put them in applesauce or whatever. 
then you need a way to crush the pills. So yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff for me to figure out. Um, I guess talk to us about afterwards uh, how, you know, I, I, I guess, I mean, I hate to put it this way in some ways, I think was life a little less stressful because you weren't taking care of a human being 24 hours a day and, and things of that nature? Well, yeah, certainly that part of it. I mean, caregiving is hard, right? Yeah. And and I think that until you either are involved in it yourself or have somebody close to you involved in it, you maybe don't really, I don't think I ever really realized or thought about like what was involved in caregiving. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was the the end of one chapter, right? It was the end of that, the, the illness and the stress of that and the, I mean, I, I can't overstate how you know, crazy with the, with the infections and with the multiple ER trips and all these things, like just how crazy that eight months was. Um, but, you know, so then it was like, well, the other thing is, we had a ton of people in our life during those eight months, which was terrific. It was very necessary and very much appreciated. We had a lot of help in the form of, there was a meal train for 10 months, probably people bringing dinners three times a week. There was people, you know, helping with the kids. There was, there's all the hospice people in and out. There were, there was someone that my friends arranged for a housekeeper to come once a week. And, you know, so all these people, and again, very, you know, very needed. And once the eight months was over, it was kind of like, like, uh, I just need to like circle the wagons a little bit. Right. Like, um, just kind of just to have like the three of us, like just breathe, you know, and just yeah. like not see everybody and not, you know, and that, and it wasn't, it's hard to say it wasn't personal and it wasn't it was just kind of like there our life was so much of everything for eight months that we just needed to like swing the other way you know yeah um and then you know i was i started to try to go back to work i mean i had been working you know those last few months kind of part-time and then maybe I don't know, two weeks or so after he died, I came back full time, but I was working remotely still. My team was still on the East coast and I was working from home, sitting here in my living room and, you know, not 10 feet from his urn and some pictures and things. And so my mind would wander, you know, and like wander into flashbacks of, of the different experiences, flashbacks of the different hospital trips, flashbacks of the funeral, flashbacks of, well, a lot of the funeral, like, like I made remarks so I could remember standing up there and seeing all these people, you know, and then the school choir singing and the, you know, walking in and walking out and who did what, and you know, like, just, I'd be trying to focus on things and I'd have all these flashbacks. Um, so, and eventually I was trying to figure out like how to get rid of the flashbacks. And, um, and it was kind of like, now see, this is going to really date me. It was like a VCR. 
playing on a loop in my head, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, VCRs were a big deal when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, I found a therapist eventually and she was terrific. And But the reason I was like, I got to find someone to talk to because I just had all these flashbacks and I was like, I, I, I can't focus, right? What do I do? So, um, yeah. I guess at what point did you come up with the widowed parent podcast um and you know i guess how what was the incentive for that i mean because mm. you know a lot of people might look at it like you know, you're reliving your experience every time you interview a guest or something, you know what I mean? Mm, you, yeah. So what was the incentive and, and, and now what has it turned into for you? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. And uh, gosh, I could probably talk about this for another hour, but I think we've already been what, like an hour and 45 minutes yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. hope, I hope people are still listening. Uh, um, so, you know, the thing is I, I mentioned that I felt lost when he was sick on the parenting part and that feeling of feeling lost continued after he died. And I was like, okay, now I have a new role here. Now I'm a widowed parent. So how do I do this? And I, you know, I went to Amazon and I typed in, you know, stuff looking for books for widowed parents and there was nothing. And I was like, how, like, well, that's great. Right. Like, and I, I don't know. I kind of like to find like a book that'll, help me understand something or help me learn something I need to learn or whatever. So it's like, Oh, there's nothing. And I, you know, I wish I could remember exactly when I thought of the podcast angle on it. Originally I was thinking about, should I go back to school and like, you know, get some kind of a, well, like second master's degree, I guess, you know, like become a therapist or become a, child life specialist or you know something that would require a formal education and take that angle and I I just thought yeah that didn't seem quite right and I wasn't sure any way that I could fit in like taking time off for school and and all that stuff and kicking around ideas and at some point well and you know I was not entirely satisfied with my corporate IT work I've been kind of I've been doing that for almost two decades at that point. And, and I was just like, ah, I, I wanted to do something that I felt was more meaningful. And you know how a lot of times you, you know, you kind of, you, you work on what you know, or like if you, if, if, if you identify some kind of problem in the world based on your own experience, then you want to like help solve that problem or whatever. Yeah. Like I decided that I, I decided there was a big gap in the widowed parenting space. And yeah. by the way, none of this is easy, right? Like, I'm not saying that the adult grief is easy, but the thing is, there's a lot of resources already. There's, there are good therapists out there that adults can, you know, can go to. There are, um, there's Camp Widow, which is, is awesome. I don't want to take us off on too much of a tangent, but uh, yeah. if anybody's widowed, they should look up Camp Widow. Okay. Um, there's good books, you know, for adults. And then for kids, there's, there are some children's grief centers that are doing really excellent work in many, many communities in this country. Um, and they have usually have like peer grief group 
that meets, you know, once or twice a month, you know, with kids in different age groups and everybody's lost a parent or sibling. And so there's a lot of really good work they're doing. But the thing that I realized early on is like, even if your kid goes to that peer grief group once or twice a month, and if they saw a therapist every week, yeah. and there are kids grief camps in the summer, they can go for like two or three days to a grief camp. Yeah. And by the way, if you do all those things, that's a lot of grief work. <laughs> Yeah. Even if you do all those things, there's still like 300 other days in the year where it's all on you, the widowed parent, to figure out what you're doing. And so I'm like, there's there's a gap here. So I, well, I kind of appointed myself to fill it, I guess. <laughs> and I realized that if I, uh, I could go out and interview people who had some you could shed light on some piece of this puzzle. So that could be people who are experts, people who've written books, people who've run, run grief camps, people who run grief centers, you know, people who could talk about different aspects, right, from an expert point of view. Yeah. But then there's also widowed parents who are farther down the path and can share their reflections and their journey, kind of like peer-based. And then there's also, which has been really interesting, is people who are now adults, and when they were kids or teenagers, they lost their parent. And now they're reflecting on, on you know, that journey from an adult perspective. Now, yeah. that's been really helpful. Because um, it's not, I mean, I don't understand what it's like to lose a parent, right? I, yeah. I lost a spouse. My kids lost a parent. Same person, two different relationships. It's yeah. different. Not that one's easier, better, harder, worse, whatever. Just different experience, different perspective. Yeah. Um, so I realized that if I went and, you know, a podcast is a pretty accessible format, right? Yeah. I could go talk to these people. I can set up interviews. I can record them just like we're doing here, publish them weekly. And other widowed parents just like me then hopefully could have that as a resource, not feel so lost, you know, have yeah. that additional um you know, sorry. So that's kind of how I got involved in that. And then as it turned out, my former employer, um, I had been remote at that point for 15 years, 20 years total with the company almost and 15, last 15 remote. They were on a big um, push to bring everybody back into the office in a small number of locations. And so they, now this is in like mid 2018, they said, hey, you know, we'd love for you to keep uh, working with us and um, if you want to do that you'll need to move to New York and otherwise you know we, we can lay you off yeah and I'm like well that's terrific yeah. <laughs> so, and it you know it really wasn't a good time to move back across the country plus I just think it would have been really weird to go back to the exact same area same office building you know I started out with my husband 20 years before and go back there now plus two kids minus him back to the yeah. same place like that just yeah. would have been too weird so yeah. i said okay this is a good time to you know i've been wanting to see what i can do in this widowed parenting space i will take the layoff and not go look for some other similar job but take like a one-year sabbatical and kind of see what i can do in this space start the podcast yeah. start writing some books see where it goes um and now I'm actually approaching two years in <laughs> awesome. wow. uh, and I'm, and I'm planning to keep going. So, yeah. um, and I, you know, I'd like to write more books. I actually really enjoy writing, yeah. although I'm kind of tearing my hair out right now. I, 
I actually have a deadline in about a week and a half for uh, getting this manuscript done. So yeah. um, it's, it's, but it's a good thing I work well under pressure because now I'm down to the point where I got to, you know, push comes to shove here and I got to get it out the door. So yeah. um, anyway. Sounds good. Well, yeah. Jenny, I just want to thank you for being on. Um, just want to acknowledge all that you're doing, the good work. Um, thank you. Because every year, you know, there are, people are becoming widows, unfortunately, and mm. um, to have a place to go to find resources, to hear about other people's experiences, and for you to turn your pain into something that's helping society um, and other future parents and and kids, um, you know, building this community is awesome. Um, so I just want to acknowledge you um, and thank you. And um, for people that want to learn more about um, what you're doing uh, and maybe support you, uh, where can they where can they find you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and thank you. And I, you know, sadly, um, more people than usual are dying right now with the pandemic and stuff going yeah. on. So, um, you know, there's unfortunately always a need, there's always going to be widowed parents and now there are more than ever. So, um, yeah, but anyway, um, thank you for bringing this, you know, letting me share some of this. My, uh, my website actually, jennylisk.com, J E N N Y L I S K.com. And, um, there's a couple of things on there, actually. Well, for anybody who's a widowed parent, if you go to jennylisk.com slash top 10, I've got a document. It's a free you know, download um, with the top 10 things that I've learned from my guests so far. So I'm going to key key lessons or points about widowed parenting um, that you know they might want to check out. And for anybody who's not a widowed parent, but is thinking in terms of like supporting people who are grieving, um, and, you know, interested in like how to write a condolence card or what to say or what not to say or how to be helpful and that kind of thing. Um, I put together a whole bunch of information. And so that's a jennylisk.com slash allies dash tips. Cool. Allies dash tips. Um, so, yeah. So for people who are and presumably, hopefully most people who are listening are not widowed parents. <laughs> I hope they're not. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I find, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from the people around me who supported my family in that time um, and how incredibly generous they were and how creative and, and helpful, plus all the other widowed people that I've talked to or encountered in some way or another sharing, you know, their insights and things. Um, I think that I've, I've heard people have told me that that's been really helpful, you know, if their colleague's wife dies or their neighbor's husband dies and they want to help, but they don't know how. Yeah. Um, I think it's because, you know, people want to help and they really, they want to fix it, but they can't fix it means like, you know, erase the death or, you know, maybe wave a magic wand, but you can't do that. Um, but I think that leads people to struggle. They don't know what to say. So, they don't know what to say to fix it. So they don't say anything, but the problem is you can't say anything that will fix it. So that you end up in a, you know, a spiral. So anyway, yeah. long way of saying there's some tips that might be helpful for um, some of your listeners in yeah. there too. And on social media, I'm everywhere at Lisk Jenny, L I S K J E N N Y. So Twitter, mm -hmm. Pinterest, Facebook, uh, Instagram, 
I think that's all of them. Uh, LinkedIn. Cool. Awesome. So, and I'm on YouTube, but, uh, but unfortunately that's Jenny Lisk, not Lisk Jenny, but okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so yeah. much for being on Jenny. Well, thank you for having me. This has been lovely. It's um, yeah. Nice long conversation is that I hope people are still listening, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Th thank you for doing this. Thank you.